Hello woodworms, I'm Ray Deptarius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who like woodworking and like reading about woodworking too. Today's episode is the second of two episodes in which I talk to Brad, a more experienced woodworker than me, about which quality tools we would suggest adding to your arsenal right at the start of your career. Those tools that you won't regret buying and that will be those first steps that set you up towards having a quality tool wall or tool chest that you aspire towards. Brad, um, I know I threw you a challenge and, uh, you know, I think certainly something that I wanted to, you know, kind of get into the meat of today for, for listeners was if you were starting out with hand tools, I'm going to be reviewing a few books or I may have re- reviewed a few books by the time this uh, episode comes out. And invariably, any one of the books you get is quite encyclopedic in terms of the quantity and the stuff that it's got inside there. So I threw you a challenge and said, if you got $1,000 and you were starting out, what would you spend it on? So do you want to take us through that list and talk us through some of your rationale of uh, of how you came up with it? And I know you put two together, so we'll kick off with the first one and you know just go from there. So I, yeah, I did two of them. And, you know, I cheated. I did the first one and it came in under budget and it actually has the most tools of the two. And then I'll be happy to go through my list and I'll be even happier for people to disagree with me. I think that we all learn the most when people give their input on what we're doing here. So the first one, since we've talked about about it, is a premium jack blade. Whether that's a number five or a low angle jack. I'll let you pick. I prefer in the long run the bevel down plane, but if you're going to have to figure it all out on your own, there's certainly a lot to be said for bevel up plane. Or if you're taking something like Shannon Rogers Hand Tool School and that's what you're going to watch somebody else use in the beginning and that's what you're going to learn on, then you're going to learn from that. I particularly like personally the Lee Nielsen versions of those, but you know, quality jack plane is going to help you out. I'm going to go straight to being potentially slightly a bit of a heretic here on the second item. And that's going to be probably if you don't own one already, and most people who are woodworkers do, if you don't own one, go buy a cordless drill, go buy the hundred dollar special at whatever your local big box store is. Cause most of the bits that you're going to go out and buy, at least in the beginning that you can pick up at the big box store work better in a cordless drill. They're designed for that different speed. If you've got one already, go buy a brace and bits and an egg beater. I put aside about a hundred dollars for that. And of those two, just stopping you there, Brad, I mean the, the brace I feel gives you uh, an expanded capability because I mean, you need a pretty good cordless drill if you want to try and drill a one inch, one and a half inch hole, you know, whereas the brace certainly seems to expand or well, certainly did for me the size of holes I could do but certainly on the lower end of that if you're doing smaller holes then a cordless drill or egg beat is really just a duplication then of something that you probably got you know like you say I would imagine most people have got that whereas the brace adds a bit of range there it does and the one thing that maybe I'm cheating a bit with the brace is picking up a used brace and there's a lot of used braces as much as I like new tools there's a lot of used braces there were millions and millions of them made it's not that hard to get one in decent shape and they're not that expensive on the secondary market so I figure you're going to pick that up pretty quick but you're going to make your your spouse your other half whatever happy by going inside and drilling into hang a photo or something like that with that cordless drill and if you go buy a twist bit at the home center it's probably going to be set up for cordless drill i mean i love my brad point bits and everything else but in the u.s they're hard to pick up good ones at the at the big box store i'm usually ordering that stuff from uh, lee valley or something like that fair enough after that while you're at the home center go buy a big box saw for breaking down your rough stock they're about 20 bucks find one that doesn't feel horrible in your hand one of the big things that i made a mistake of and a lot of other people do is 
And I'll say this now is when you put your hand in that big box off, point your finger, point your index finger out the front. Your biomechanics will be much better. Life will be easier. I have next two Japanese style saws. I think for an inexpensive saw for joinery work, you can get a better saw for a lower price in the Japanese saws. I have a Dozuki and a Ryoba for about $30 each. And that should get you tenons and dovetails going just fine there. Follow that up with a 12-inch combination square for about $100. Stare it in this case. It's really nice if you can swing it to have something you know is square. It's an interesting one that because, you know, there's quite a range of, uh, I guess, advice on that. I mean, a lot of people will tell you, go buy the Starrett first because it's fantastic. You never need another one. It's perfect. And then, you know, other guys are saying, well, just go grab something from the box store and, you know, just check it and make sure it's square. I was not a fan of combination squares, and I think it's probably because I'd I'd had uh, quite poor ones when I was younger. But that 12-inch Starrett has been a a great addition to the um, workshop for me. And I found that I retired quite a lot of the little machinist squares that I'd been using to check square in between. So before I went down that route, I, I bought those, you know, three inch, four inch, six inch, whatever machinist squares, which seemed more affordable than than buying a Starrett. actually sold mine relatively recently. Mine sat in a drawer for several years. I realized I hadn't used them, so I finally moved them on uh, to somebody who could get better use out of them. But yeah, absolutely. The the engineer squares are a, a perfectly valid option. I think the combination square gives you that ability to depth and measure. And I don't mean so much measure as in what are the little tick marks on there say, but repeatedly set something. You can set that, stare it at some distance and come back and make a mark off of that again and again. So you get that repeatability at whatever, you know, if you need know that your tenon needs to be shorter than this mortise and the mortise is this deep, don't read the numbers, just lay it there and then cut your tenon a little bit shorter than that so that it doesn't hit the bottom. Then you've got a, you've got a PC, a, a six inch Harry Epstein there. Is, is that the, the double, the double square there? Is that what that one is? Or? That could be a double I'm square not, or that could be a small combo square. square okay. Small, okay. Either way, the large one is really nice to have, especially if that's all you've got. If you want to lay out that line for that cross cut on a board or that's you know, eight or 10 inches wide, like most boards are. That 12 inch is really nice for that. But that small one is going to be really handy for that thing that you keep on you, smaller marking, smaller measuring. And then there's a real nice advantage to be able to have luxury to have two, two squares, each set it at something that you can come back to. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good suggestion. I've actually ended up with a little four inch dovetail um, square. So so those are the two that I'm that I'm going to most of the time. You're 100 percent right. I mean, if you're doing some work, having one set as let's call it a, a you know depth gauge or to a specific depth, and then being able to use the other one to to strike a line and mark something off certainly makes a lot of sense there. I probably use the 12 inch occasionally nowadays and I have some smaller double square or other ones, you know, one premium one. And that's really 80% what, what I use. But I do remember get, with that moment that I got that steric combination square and I took it out and I tried out all my squares. These were right and these were wrong. And this explained why some things weren't coming out the way I planned, that that was kind of game changer and it allowed me to do things at a bigger scale. You can generally do smaller things with a bigger tool, but you can't always do bigger things with a smaller tool, at least not easily. Then I follow that up with an inexpensive striking knife, in this case, Veritas. It's a wholly adequate, nice little marking knife will let you reach into spaces. If it's not next in the budget, you can certainly use a lot of other knives. 
anything from your pocket knife to an exacto knife or other things in between. You know, there you can go and spend hundreds of dollars if you want to on a on a premium one, and I'm certain they're nice tools. I don't actually own one, though I've handled a couple of them before. But I think that that is, you know, that's probably not the first place to spend your money. And probably not even the second or the third place to spend your money. But I see next up, you've got a wheel, wheel marking gauge there. And I mean, I certainly think that that for me was also, that's kind of a game changer. You definitely need a good one of those in the in the shop. I mean, that gets used so often in my shop, it's uh, not even funny. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, you'll want a couple of them. But yes, you need a wheel marking gauge. Get one of reasonable quality. Yes, the tight marks are amazing. No, I don't own one. Maybe someday. I have a you know, couple of Eritos in that $40 range. They're good tools. Don't spend the extra money on the one that has markings for length on it. You'll never use it past the first couple of times you use it. You'll just be marking relative to the piece. I made that mistake, yeah. <laughs> so did I. So did I. Yeah. Um, I also bought the mortising attachments and everything else for it. And I, yeah, I, got, I, use got those, I think got those in plastic still in the, in, the, in the same drawer. I've actually got a drawer called Veritas where I, where I put these things that I was convinced I needed. You know, the, the other one that's in there that I was looking at the other day and just wishing I'd spent the money on a on a saw was the edge planing guide, you know, that magnetic attachment that you can put onto the side of the plane so you get that perfect 90 degree edge. And I remember watching one of Shannon's videos where he's like just showing how he uses his finger and he checks it with a square. And I was like, I'll never get that right. And I bought that edge adjustment. And then obviously, because I wasn't getting the lateral adjustment sorted out right, I wasn't getting square edges anyway. So that thing went into a drawer. Uh, that's definitely one of those ones I wish I'd just skipped in the beginning. Yeah. We'll come back to this, but I mean, I think that brings up an important point about especially hand tool woodworking is a skill and a skill that you need to practice and not be afraid to make a practice session out of or a practice project out of especially if you're doing something new you know if you would never be a baseball player and go straight to the world series and let's see how this new uh, bat works you know you're going to practice with those tools you're going to practice with your skills and if you need to cut some practice dovetails or practice mortise and tenons especially since we don't do this every day you know we're not if we're hobbyists we're not doing it on a daily basis so we may need to practice a little bit or warm it up you know there's there's something to be said for that you know i'm also guilty of being part of that internet generation where you know you you kind of want it and you want it now and you're you're not putting any time and effort into it and i I know it was probably what six months ago now yeah it was just december january i decided i was going to cut dovetails you know and do do a dovetail a day for a month you know and when you think about how little time commitment that actually is i mean it's a it's an insanely small amount of time and yet you know 10 or 15 dovetails in you're already seeing a in fact, not even 10 or 15, probably five or six in, I was seeing a, a massive change in the quality of what I was doing. And yet somehow we just think that we're going to go out and the first time we do something, we're going to we're going to get it right. And you know, I was watching Shannon doing that three-way mitre joint the other day. And I, in the back of my head, I've got, okay, I'll go, go stick a table together now and I'll do that. And I'm sitting there going, Ray, you know, really sit down, go make a couple of those practice joints. And when you've done three or four or five of them and you're happy with them, then go make some furniture. But, you know, somehow it's always just so attractive just to jump in and and then, you know, invariably there's that disillusionment that follows. I mean, the first time I exploded a dovetail, I think it was a year before I came back and even tried it again because I'd, I'd just gone in, I'd made it, I hadn't practiced, I did it, it didn't come out well, and then I wanted to, you know, throw it away and not do it again. And yeah, we certainly need more patience working on skills, working on ourselves in the shop. Yeah, and as I say, that the and this goes back to that, that story that we like to tell ourselves where, you know, dovetails in three easy steps. Yes, dovetails are easy. Dovetails are easy once you know how to saw a straight line and chisel to a line. And 
we, you know, how many new woodworkers do we do we see? And, you know, were, were we ourselves that we got so frustrated when that first time came around and we, we failed and then we thought that there was something wrong with us? Whereas, you know, you don't go get a driver's license. You don't just walk down, sit in a car and drive off. Nobody did. You don't go to uh, straight to a college calculus class and, and sit down and start doing that. So why would we think that we would go and be perfect right away at woodworking, which was a skilled profession? The skilled trade. Yeah, and I mean, we're, and we're certainly aspiring to build good things. You know, that's the other thing. I mean, if you were if you're trying to put out uh, a bench, a garden bench that had huge gaps in it, you know, then then fair enough, that's one thing. But when you're aspiring to put something together that you know hopefully would qualify as fine furniture, well, it's going to take a bit of practice and a bit of time on that. Now, Brad, I, I was quite intrigued by your choice on the chisels because you've you've got LD chisels here, and then you've got three premium chisels. Do you, you, you want to take me through your, your thoughts on that one? Happy to. So, first of all, I think you should have three good chisels to use in your woodworking. I think that you can start off. You'll want more eventually, but you can start off with a quarter, either a half or a three eighths, and a one inch. I think that's going to give you a nice range of of chisels to work with. Those are going to be your premium go-to chisels. I included those Aldi chisels, one, because everybody should have some beater chisels for scraping off glue and hitting things that we're not sure what's going to be inside of the other piece that we hit and just for around the house. The advantage of those chisels is they're five or ten bucks. If you screw one up, cool. But the most important skill, and I think hopefully you'll agree with me on this, the gateway skill to hand tool woodworking is being able to get things sharp. Yeah. Those Aldi chisels, they're not going to be sharp out of the box. But if you want to go try something on a grinder, or you want to try some new sharpening technique, or you want to try flattening the back of something, you don't need to flatten the back of those Lee Nielsen chisels. You don't. They're perfect as they are. If you don't know what you're doing with sharpening, sharpen the bezel, wipe off the burr, leave it alone until you're comfortable, if you want to bring that polish up any higher. The Aldi chisels are are there to beat on and there to learn on and there to learn sharpening on. And they're going to be a little bit more frustrating, but you're going to learn to bring those two points together. And, and as I say, they're, they're there for, to give you other sizes because getting you're, they're going to give you a wider variety of sizes than you can get than you can afford up front from a premium manufacturer. And they're going to give you something quasi disposable to learn on. Yeah, I think I think they'll also give you that special moment when you uh, turn your chisel blue on the grinder, and then you realize that they weren't joking about you know dipping it in water quite often. Let that error be inexpensive because it's all going to happen. I have a number. My number five vintage jack plane has a burned corner. First time I put it on a grinder and uh, didn't dip often enough. I think we've uh, we've all had we've all had that moment where you know a couple of milliseconds later we remember that we really should have taken it slower. But yeah, it, it seems like it's that kind of lesson that you have to. It's a, it's a tactile lesson. You know, it's like my boys and telling them not to touch the fireplace. You know, you can do that as much as you want, but every now and again they just need to go and burn a finger on a coal and then realize that the fire's not joking. You know, and I, I think those chisels are, would, would certainly be a better way of doing it than. On, on the premium tools and if you and want you to speak, later you can make them into a skew chisel or some other specialty tool gives you something for the kids to uh, to emulate dad on as well because mm-hmm. uh, you know that that's certainly better than them taking um, some premium chisels to you know with with a hammer if my kids are anything to go by doing it on concrete or on bricks because apparently that's a good backing material when you it's, when you're it, chopping it, it's out. very <laughs> rigid it doesn't move you know <laughs> yeah I, I'm occasionally I, I'm stuck between this absolute delight that my son is uh, 
kind of following in my footsteps and then the horror of the way he's doing it. So, yeah. And Brad, you, you you know, talking about sharpening here, you've got a granite reference place and sandpaper. So that's that's really a, you know, gateway get you into that, gives you gives you some options there. You know, ultimately, I'm, I'm sure we'll move off that. But, you know, in, in terms of coming in, you know, kind of in that thousand buck mark, I mean, I, I know you've thrown in a fret saw there as the last one, but you've kind of spent your money on your tools there and not, not too much on your on your sharpening system there. Yeah, and that was one of, that I, I had a hard time with because, you know, I think that a sharpening system is extremely important. But on the other hand, if you don't have any tools to do anything with and you have a beautiful sharpening system, you can't do any woodworking. So like many people, I started with mostly with sandpaper and then I moved to a couple of different variations of water stones and uh, diamond stones. And now I'm playing with a little bit with some oil stones. But the, the point of that was that you're going to spend some money on sandpaper, for, you know, $10, $12, and you, that's going to get you by it probably also recommend that you get an inexpensive eclipse style guide go watch the video on lee nielsen's website on how to refile that so it's quasi useful and get sharp and then work and get woodworking you know a thousand dollars is if we're if we're going out and buying tools new and not on sale you know that's the other thing about buying tools is that you might catch something on sale or somebody might give you something and then you can, then this thousand dollars doesn't become a thousand dollars and then it becomes 900 or 800. But since we're doing, I tried to do things that people could go out and buy, or at least normally could go out and buy as I was going through the list. I did find out a lot of things out of stock due to the chaos in the world right now. But the granite reference plate, I also, I know some people will disagree with me. I think it's a useful thing to have in the shop because you've got a known flat surface. They're not terribly expensive, at least, here you can usually pick one up at Woodcraft when they go on sale for forty or so dollars. I think when I bought mine, that number was thirty or so dollars fifteen years ago or whatever. And it's a known flat surface, and you can flatten water stones on it with sandpaper. And you, the first time you run your premium plane over a nail, put a little bit of four hundred grit sandpaper down on there and just gently wipe it across without ruining the flatness of it. And it gives you that that ability to move forward but it's not going to be the final sharpening system you want to own i think though i mean one one of the things that does make it accessible in in my eyes is that you know i, I kind of jumped in to the water stones and then found that they were a hell of a mess so you know those got bulleted quite quickly I, w- I won't even really say i had much experience with them i i owned them and i actually sold them to someone who wanted them for sharpening knives and just you know got most of my money back but i used sandpaper for it's not sandpaper for a while i used um the diamond stones the, the dmt diamond stones for a while but i i couldn't afford all of the grit so you know i kind of had this i think i had the coarse and then i had a i had an extra fine you know and and, and that was really what I could afford at the time because they obviously they're not cheap to to buy those things. So what I found then was very frustrating is, you know, you'd use the one, you get the burr off, you do what you needed to do, and then you'd move to the other one. And I mean, I remember having to count like 200, 300 strokes to get to to where I wanted to. So, I mean, one of the advantages of having the sandpaper is having those range of grits, which eliminates the amount of time, I guess, you're spending on, on each step. You know, let's say it's three or four grits that you're using. You can move through them quite quickly. Whereas if you were just kind of scraping in there and buying a, a diamond stone or water stone and then leaving a big gap to the, the next one, kind of thinking that you'd come in and fill it in later, you create quite a lot of frustration for yourself when you when you move from, you know, your coarser stone to, you know, to a finer stone. Absolutely. And you can do the same thing with water stones. You know, the 1,000, 8,000 grit jump that is so popular. I've done it. You really ought to have a middle step in there. The ed- the final edge you get is better 
because you never, I mean, you could, but it would take forever, are going to remove that 1,000 grit efficiently with that 8,000 grit, that four or 5,000 in the middle is, is a nicer step. And as you say, the, the sandpaper gets you there. Diamond plates are a wonderful thing. You know, they weren't really available when I started woodworking. The only versions of the diamond plates that were around were the plastic bottom things. You know, and I'll throw out what a game changer, good quality diamond plates, whether they're DMTs or, or other brands now that are flat and quality and long lasting out of the box. That's really an advancement in, in woodworking. And I and I think that if you look just at the gap in our time frame, when I was getting into it, everybody was waterstones were the thing. And I would say that right now, diamond stones are the thing. Look, I, th- I think they also they you know they are simpler in a way because you know I did find with the the water stones you you are also trying to chew them up the whole time. There's obviously the soaking, etc. So the DMT feels to me like that solid, you know, solid offering, good mainstream offering that sits in the middle. Which grits exactly you need, I, I think, is a interesting debate. I mean, at one point I had the extra extra course and I was trying to replace a bench grinder, you know, because I was being a purist about you know electricity in the workshop i've got a bench grinder with a cvn wheel on it now you know i i found that trying to use one of those absolutely coarse ones as a replacement for a grinder was an exercise in frustration but certainly sort of that coarse medium fine and then i go extra extra fine i think those are the four that i use in the in the shop i've certainly got four i just can't remember what what the grits are specifically and you can whiz through those you know hit the one hit the next one hit the next one and then jump onto some leather so i mean as a as a long-term solution they're great but i mean when i look at that and go you know that's a couple of hundred dollars sitting there that's quite a chunk of investment if you're getting into this you know supposedly affordable um hobby of hand tools and then brad i see your next tool so you've got a smoother joiner plow plane router plane uh the 140 and, and a shoulder plane i mean i think those are all you know pretty solid choices i know the router plane often gets bumped up the list uh great for you know refining the bottom of you know dados those were not necessarily yep. in any particular order just kind of tools that would be coming that you would need soon let what you're doing dictate that order so i mean certainly no doubt on that in my mind i mean i'm, I'm interested that you've put a shoulder plane because there's been a been a few internet articles or you know a few opinions about you know shoulder plane isn't really that good for working on shoulders or whatever but i for me it's probably my go-to rabbiting plane and i, I don't own a, a rabbiting block plane so you know i'll put i'll put that out there but i've got two shoulder planes a trying to remember the numbers again i think it's 73 and a 42 but anyway it gives me a little bit of a range there but they're fantastic i find for just squaring up parts of joinery that you've got wrong for whatever reason you know even the other day using a plow plane and just getting that slight diagonal because i hadn't you know i hadn't set it properly and then i could just go back with the shoulder plane reference it on the bottom you know true up the edge get myself a nice perfect 90 for going there so i certainly found a shoulder plane to be very useful for chewing up the sort of house joints and, you know, rabbits and grooves and that that sort of stuff. I've really enjoyed it from that point of view. I think part of the critique of them is that they're not a quote-unquote traditional tool. You know, they were not something you saw in that form, you know, in a 17th or an 18th century uh, woodshop. And they're, you know, they don't push the shavings out maybe as nicely as a skewed rabbit plane or something like that. But they're a darn useful tool and they're available. And if you know, we go back to that whole, how do you get a plane that works well? You can go right now online to Lee Nielsen or Lee Valley and order a shoulder plane and it will work. If you want to go buy a, a rabbit plane, what are you going to, what are you going to find on the used market? Unless you can afford to wait six months and spend 
three times the amount of the cost of it from one of the premium molding plane makers on the market. It, I think it's a, it's a valuable tool. And if you decide later you don't like it, again, if you buy a quality tool, not always, I'm not making financial advice, but frequently you can get 80, 90% of that, that value back out of that tool. And if it's been 10 years and you lost $20 on a tool over that 10 years, you know, what have you paid? $2 a year in rent? Yeah, I think you opened my eyes to that approach because if you're taking the difference between what you paid for and what you recovered, I mean, fair enough, you're tying up a little bit of capital, but as long as you're not leaving those tools just lying in the workshop and, you know, I mean, then it really is a sunk expensive cost. But if you buy that tool, use it for a bit, decide you don't like it and get rid of it, I mean, it's holding quite a lot of its value. I, I was interested that you had a plow plane there and I, you know, I was going to ask if you've got an opinion on the plow planes, you know, versus the the sort of combination planes because I think I've told you I'm trying to work on not buying any more tools on the internet, but I saw a combination plane the other day on uh, our equivalent of eBay over here, you know, you know, great one for 45, you know, $45 or whatever. And I was looking at it and I, I really think I've come to a place where I prefer my plow plane to any of the, the sort of combination planes or, you know, the, the more complicated planes. So I passed that one up, but you know, I wondered if you had an opinion on that. Have you have you had much luck playing with those, or do you you know kind of use a plow plane just simply for grooving, you know, bottom of drawers, that sort of stuff? So I'll ask you this: What did you want to do with that combination plane? What were you thinking you would do outside of plowing grooves? Well, I thought I thought originally that I was going to use it for like the the beading and some of the profiles, you know. And I found that you know, a I haven't done as much of that as I would have liked, and b I found that fiddly. So I've I've now ended up with a few wooden profiles that that do that job. So, you know, that that for me was, you know, where where it's gone. You know, even even to be honest with you that I've got that 78 that moving philister plane for you know for cutting cross grain philisters or you know cross grain grooves whatever we want to call those you know it's an it's another tool that i find is not getting used as often as i thought it would be because i can simply use a saw and then you know use the shoulder plane if i needed to or use a you know use the, the router plane and just uh, sort out the bottom of the of the joint so you know that's where i've kind of i, I looked at this combination plane i thought Gee, it can do a lot of things, but the reality of I'm just not doing those things that often in the workshop. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling on it is it's just a lot of fiddly switching around for tools. I mean, if you look at most plow planes, all of their blades are lost except for the quarter inch blade that's sitting in there. And I think that, that that tells you what most people actually use them for. Certainly you can use them. I don't tend to love fiddly tools. I like things that are that are simple and effective. The little bit I've played with combination planes, I mean, I have a plow plane and that works great and it's wonderful, but I don't want to fiddle with changing this blade and moving this and adjusting this and getting out of second skates. And, and I'll never say I'll never, I'll never own one because, you know, I may grow and change in my opinion. But I think for the most part, if you just want a couple edge profiles, you either can do the, you know, you can do a 45 or a 30 degree bevel if you just want to chamfer with other planes or if you want to do beating or fluting or something like that. You know, I, I complained a little bit about wooden planes middle minute ago, but the molding planes are rarely so beat up as some of the other planes. If you can buy them in person or buy them from someone more reliable, finding one or two of those, and they're not as collectible, so you frequently aren't fighting with the people who are trying to buy the Stanley number whatever to, to fit the, the missing spot on their shelf. Oh, that's, that's fair enough. The 140, um, you're a fan of that? Uh, I am. I am. I I think it's a great... Uh, had a Veritas Philister style plane. I mean, I think that it's important to have a Philister style plane in the shop. I picked the 140 because it's 
well-made, it's simple, and it works. And that was my experience with it. And you can buy, I personally like the Lee Nielsen honing guide, and I think that somewhere along the line, that would be a great purchase for most people. You can do your free your honing freehand if you get there. There are some people who can do all of the whole thing freehand, and my, my hat's off to them. I uh, maybe too much of an engineer in my mind, but I'd like to have something to reset to a basic place, but you can get a set of jaws for that and re- reset it exactly like it came from the family for that Lee Nielsen tool, whereas some of the other jigs, it's harder. You can do it. Anything can be done. It's just how much of a, how not much of an effort is it to do. And I think that that small design, I think it fits the hand well. So yeah, if, if you can swing the, the newer version of that with, with events, but if you can't, I mean, there's a lot of ways to cut a rabbit. As you point out, you can do it with a chisel, you can do it with a saw. Look at your options and pick things up as you find that you need them or you want them. No, exactly. And I mean, to your point about the scale and the stuff you're doing, I mean, if if you're doing a lot of boxes where you need that all the time and it's making you miserable, you know, that's very different from needing to do one once every couple of months where, you know, chisel and a saw and a little bit of time and effort will, uh, you know, will, will, will get you by. So depending on the nature of what you're doing and depending on your confidence level you know i'm you know quite aware that it's very easy for me to say now you know cut a whatever eighth of an inch off here or you know do something like that but in in the beginning i had absolutely no chance of doing that i mean i would have been way off my line and you know i mean i definitely wouldn't have been in the wayside either of you know i would have been messing a piece up and you know now doing a small little cut like that makes sense so you know even even something like a um a shooting plane you know, I, I like the one I've got and I, you know, and I use it depending on the work you're doing and how you like working. That might be a great investment or, you know, it might be something that you use very rarely. I, I think that will depend on, on how you do it. But if, if we if we jump ahead now, so you, you gave me a second list and, and I was quite intrigued in this one because, uh, you know, essentially there what you've done is you trimmed down the list of tools that you had and you brought in a, a, a premium panel saw and a premium, you know, tenon saw that you've that you put in there. Do you want to talk through that one, and and who you know who would you suggest pitching pitching this tool list to? So the, the basically, I would say the first list I did is if you're going to spend some money, but you're pro- this is probably going to be it for a while. You're not going to have a, a budget coming forward because there are some gaps in the second list that I did. The advantage of the second list that I did is that all of the tools that are on there are of a better make, maybe not necessarily the best, but a better make. You can resell if you want to move to a different get most of your money back out of them but you may want to fill in some of the things that i didn't include there you know again a premium jack plane around that 300 mark a brace and bits or a cordless drill i had to drop the the starrett because there just wasn't space in the budget for it so a six inch uh combination square again the veritas striking knife the wheel gauge three chisels from lee nielsen some sandpaper on a block of mdf at that point you've given up your granite reference plate and then two quality saws, a Lee Nielsen panel saw. Probably they're, uh, I think they have a seven points per inch rip. And I, as a compromise to having a dedicated rip. And, and then the Lee Nielsen tenon saw, which I think was a 10 or a 12 point saw. And that will get you an awful lot of joints cut, an awful lot of things made. And if you want to part with any of those tools down the road, let's say you want to move from or you may never need to part with some of those tools. You may be perfectly happy with that panel saw and that tenon saw. You wouldn't have yeah, I mean, to upgrade I, if you don't want to. There's very little on that that I would suggest, you know, that you would need to replace. You know, we we all kind of go down that rabbit hole of, I, you know, I, I suspect that, 
you know, if I had a full set of Bridge City Toolworks uh, planes that I would, you know, be looking at Sauer and, you know, Stein or whatever, and, you know, just kind of moving up and up and up the, you know, the, the scale, there, there's certainly that element that says I'm passionate about it, I love it, you know, I've got something and I see something better and I want it, you know, so I, I get that. But if I, if I look at the list, uh, I think that, you know, those tools could very easily form, you know, let's call it 80% of the base of a lifetime toolkit that, you know, would, would let you do basically anything you wanted to do. I mean, it's really, it, I think it was a good tool list and uh, I can't see anything there that I'd want to throw away, you know. Yeah, the, the downside of it is it pushed me a little bit over $1,000, which is why yeah. I, I, I tried to offer something that fit within that since that was the, the air quote, you know, rules of the game. But what did you come up with, Ray? I think uh, it, it's quite interesting. I mean, if, if we, we ran through what I would work on, I think that probably one of the differences and, you know, this due to scale is where you had the jack plane, I would be tempted to go for a number four. Mm-hmm. And the reason, you know, I feel on that is your workshop could have a two plane combo for quite a while. So again, like your list, I wouldn't get a joiner in there as well, but you could get the number four and then the next plane that you got, you know, next Christmas present, birthday present, um, I don't know, some lies to your spouse about how you needed to do something for housework, you know, however you managed to get the funds for that one. I thought a, a four and a seven combo, if I'd had that in the first year or two, I think I would have been very, very happy with that or maybe even a four and a six to be honest i liked i like my number six quite a lot you know a little under six foot i'm not uh, the tallest or biggest guy in the world um certainly not a you know gym bunny in terms of upper body i ride bicycles you know so you can picture the physique so from that point of view that a number four there and then a number seven later would, would have been my preference the, the one caveat i will put on that is that you are not then going to be able to go and pick up you know chris schwarz's book and you know, traverse and just follow by rote in terms of flattening your work. You're going to need to identify high spots. You're going to need to use the winding sticks and uh, the straight edges, and you're going to need to spot plane and get your stuff down. Um, that was maybe the one where I was sitting there thinking, is that fair to say that I would have been able to do that when I started up? I'm not sure, but I think that if you got the number four and you, you know, watch some videos on spot planning and you try to apply those techniques, I think you could get a, get a lot done there. So, like you, I think that there's probably only room in the budget for, for one of them. You know, unashamedly, I'd probably be going with the Lee Nielsen bevel down there. I wouldn't be going with the bronze one, just out of interest. Uh, I've got the bronze one in my workshop. But I regret that. I bought it convinced that the, the extra weight and everything would make it a good smoother, but I actually like a lighter plane and I you know, comparing it to the antique planes, I think I should have got the metal bodied one. So that, you know, a little bit of a saving there. I would have, you know, would have saved some money there. In terms of the cordless drill you know the the brace or bits i've got a got a cheap ryobi um you know that that was useless and you know i, I abused it and and you know it was terrible and then i went and bought a, a relatively cheap bosch but the big game changer on the bosch for me was that it came with two batteries you know and so I, I've, I've got one that's in the drill and one that's on charge and you know that for me was also the real game changer if you're going to get a cordless drill getting a second battery so that thing doesn't run out in the middle of a project or you know at the most inconvenient time i certainly think that that's worthwhile and i think i'm like you i'd lean towards the cordless drill rather than the egg beater if you're building a workbench anytime soon i think the brace is useful for you know for cleaning out the bigger joints um and for putting some of the hardware in there throw in for the record don't do not drill your uh, bench dog holes with the spade bit don't ask me how i know I've got one of those modern auger bits that I saw in literally in a box store, you know, the usual story wandering through to go and get, you know, pool chemicals and whatever sort. I thought, oh, that looks useful. And it's a three quarter, which for, for us is quite unusual because most of our sizes here were metric. And this is a, similar to that sort of 
Albert kind of thing, you know, three three or four flutes on it and supercharged and turbo this and turbo that and whatever. Gee, was that that was an even worse mistake than a spade bit because it it just chews into the wood and then invariably just gets jammed and won't go any further. So so that was completely useless. If you've got any three quarter drilling in your future, I think you need to have a brace by then. You know, preferably a I think something with it like a ten inch throw or whatever, so that you've got a bit of bit of leverage there. On the the combo square, I think I'd probably be going with your your twelve inch Sturrett. I think that's uh, definitely something I'd like to you know spend the money on. I think where I differ, and I mean it's it's kind of halfway between your two lists, is if there's any chance of getting a a, a bad axe twelve inch crosscut saw, not their bayonet, they just call it their twelve inch hybrid or small tenon or whatever that's called. If you can get a twelve inch bad axe. If there's any way you could fit that in, I, I would definitely go for that, and that would mean you know dropping the you know the premium panels or whatever. I would chuck in the twenty dollar you know big box store crosscut, and if you've got to make a couple of rips with that, you just live with that. But then having one nice tenon saw for your joinery, and I think that's my go-to saw probably ninety percent of the time in the in the workshop. I've got the sixteen and the eighteen inch. I think you know you and I've chatted about that. I've got the the eighteen inch rip and the sixteen inch crosscut, but they really don't get that much use in my shop unless I'm building yeah, big that, projects. Yeah, that 12-inch is a real sweet spot, and I can definitely yeah. uh, definitely see your your point in that, uh, that that one premium. I probably picked that one up. Yeah. It's 80% of the usage, including for crosscuts and lines filed ripped. Uh, you know, I think yeah. I think something that people get too hung up on is that you can't cross cut with a I was going to say I wouldn't get hung up about that either. I mean, I had a 12 inch Veritas for a long time, and that was my only joinery saw. And I think there's some advice that you should probably relax the couple of teeth at the you know at the toe to make that easier to start or whatever. But notwithstanding that, you know, a good 12 inch saw is a great addition. And when I say bad axe, you know, to be honest, I think what I'm saying is any premium saw there. I think I would have saved money by having bought fewer, better tools earlier because there was a lot of money lost along the way by buying, you know, mid-range and then upgrading and upgrading. And you don't get the money back, and you don't get the money back out of a mid-range tool the way you do you, it out of a premium. You don't. You know, I'll, I'll use rasps as an example because those are kind of a complete counterpoint. I felt no need to get rasps at all until quite far into this, and then I decided I might as well, you know, just go with uh, those three that Chris recommends. You know, and uh, I got uh, Oreos for those, and th- those have been phenomenal. If I compare that to anything I've ever previously used, they, you know, they're just a completely different class. But I've literally just got the modelers, the little um, rat tail, and you know, the and then the coarser cabinet one. I have no desire to go and buy anything else or, you know, more of them. And I think that's possibly some of the danger of, you know, not getting premium equipment is that if you do spend on the premium, you have to really think about your choices. And once you've bought them, they're big ticket items, you you know, you get a lot of use out of them. Whereas when I was buying antique, you know, I would, coming back to the planes, I'd see a number four and I'd go, well, I've got a number four, but, you know, that's a good price on it. I know what they go for on eBay. I'll put in a cheeky bid and see if I get it. You know, and that's how I ended up with two number fours, two number four and a halfs, two number fives. You know, um, if I'd added those all up and said, hang on, what, what did those cost me? I definitely would have been better off getting one good tool in the beginning. So I think on that, I debated the diamond stones quite a bit. You know, and I think we've discussed that because I think that's really the one possible place to to differ on the lists. But I couldn't wrap my head around taking 20% of the budget, you know, spending them on um, on stones. Uh, what what I would say that I, I think is the only 
other possible sharpening option is that if you've already got a grinder, you know, and I know that's a big if, but if you've got one of those in the workshop, getting a CBN wheel, I found that I could go from a CBN wheel to one diamond stone to, um, you know, to the leather and I could live with that. So I think that's another option. But again, when I, when I have a look at that, you know, you, you again, you're sitting there where you've spent 20% to 25% of your budget just on sharpening. So I think, uh, Certainly in the beginning, I think the sandpaper on MDF is an option or, you know, make friends with someone who's got some sharpening kit and, you know, see if you can't, uh, yeah, if you can't appropriate them. Because if you do things right, you should rarely be going back. Honing, yeah. honing, honing should be often and grinding or shaping your bevel should be rare unless you drop something. The interesting thing on that is, I mean, if, if the stuff's sharp and you are religious about, about stropping before sessions i mean you, you can probably get a quite a big window out of that you know so that that certainly is an option i, I must admit that i'm i'm not as diligent with that as i as i, as I should be so I, I tend to have these sharpening bursts you know where i where i go and get everything up to spec again and you know then i stop religiously for a few weeks and then you know a couple of the chisels don't get the love that they need and you know then we go back to having another sharpening day and, and sharpening a couple of them but again you know it's, it's also a handful of the tools that are getting used which i think comes back to the point on the chisels i've got file chisels um you know pfeil i think i'm pronouncing that that correctly um so i probably would have economized there i'm also i'm not a fan of the socket chisels you know and i, I know there's probably pros and cons of those i don't see myself replacing handles or you know doing anything along those lines so i've you know typical tang and ring type chisels there and with those i've got four or five of them but again a one inch half inch quarter inch or you know similar metric sizes you know i think i ended up with a four mil and an eight mil instead of a six mil which you know would be the quarter inch so i've got a few in that in that size range but the reality is that there's two or three of those chisels that are doing all the work so would certainly suggest that someone gets decent chisels there the one thing that i had on my list that uh, you know not on either of your lists and and again Probably a relatively cheap purchase that you can you can get on the antique market is a spoke shave. Great little uh, addition to the list. You know, a draw knife's harder to find a good antique version, and it's harder to find a um, cheaper new version. But between a spoke shave and a draw knife, there's a lot of um, versatility that sort of gets added into the list and particularly if you've got kids i think a spoke shave is is such a great gateway drug for the kids you know if you can take them into the into the workroom give them some pine and a spoke shave they can really have a lot of fun and then the other thing that i would have tried to fit into this into this list is a is a lee nielsen 102 the little the little block plane there i know it doesn't have the referenceable sides i know it doesn't have the adjustable mouth that's I know my it doesn't favorite have any block plane that's my favorite I, block plane <laughs> If they couldn't swing the one or two, that you can do a lot of the things that you do with a block plane with a spoke shape. Yeah, so that those yeah. breaking of corners and and all those sorts of things, a little bit of skill you can do with a with a spoke shape. What's also nice to me about the block plane is that the block plane it gives you the the kind of baby hand plane on this on the smaller stuff. So you know if you're going to make a little jewelry box or you're going to make you know just something to throw bric-a-brac you know into, I find that having that little block plane just to you know you know, whatever, you're a 16th of an inch out on one of the corners and you need to trim it, grabbing a number four and trying to do that on a, a four-inch, you know, long box is is not great fun. I mean, um, you know, compared to just quickly reaching and grabbing the 102 and it sort of lives there front and center on my, my tool bench and I grab it whenever, you know, whenever there's an opportunity and, you know, it seems to get used uh, a lot. 
Um, the one thing I'd, I'd be interested in, you know, you know, your opinion on, we kind of glossed over a little bit earlier, but it was the, you know, the fret saw, or the, you know, coping saw. Is that is that something you use a lot in your shop? I don't actually own a coping saw. Um, I use a fret saw and I use that primarily for dovetails. I have a turning saw. Yeah. I, I don't use it a whole lot either. I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, the fret saw I use for dovetails, um, it really depends. Well, I'll say this. It's one of those things that I use rarely and I'll admit I'll, you know, maybe I cheat a bit when I make curved stuff and maybe a bandsaw or a jigsaw comes out occasionally too. Um, but, you know, the coping saw is designed for coping material on the back of a uh, piece of molding so you can stick it together. That was its original intended purpose. The fret saw, it works for a lot of things and the, so does the other, but I put it on there because it gives people the option of cutting out small pieces of wood and making that curved cut. Um, I, I have to say it doesn't get a huge amount of work outside of a few specific things. Yeah, I'm starting to cut out the the waste like that rather than chiseling the whole lot out. So, the, you know, the jury's still out for me on that. You know, my son caught me the other day and he said to me, he said, Dad, you know, that saw looks like a good idea, but it isn't really, is it? <laughs> you know, I think are that you, was... Are you trying that, to use it on the pole or the push? I'm using it on the push. Yeah. Turn it around. Yeah. Turn, turn the blade around. Even the new concepts, which I have, that saw it works so much better on the full stroke. What are you? Are you got you got a basic inexpensive one, or have you got it? No, I've, I've also got the new concepts one there. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. And so. the other thing that I found with that is uh, make sure before you put those blades in that you clean the end of them with a little bit of alcohol or something like that. Otherwise, sometimes they slip on you. But try it on the full stroke. And try not to push the saw. With a with a big Western saw, you can you can put a little bit of muscle behind it. Um, you know, I had issues with it too. And, and be realistic about the thickness of the material you're cutting. It doesn't like seven eighths or one inch material as well. No, fair enough. Yeah. Now I, I was looking at it. You know, sort of for um, those kind of wider dovetail you know removal. So you know, if I wasn't doing particularly thin pins and tails, you know, I tend to spread them out evenly um you know I don't, I don't know what they they call that i know there's a london pattern and whatever but i quite like the look of evenly spaced pins and tails so when i'm doing that and and there's you know quite a bit of waste to remove i've been trying to remove that with it and yeah uh, yeah jury's still out we'll, we'll see how we go i'll try some of those tips and uh, and report back on that sometime in the future yeah and and like many things in woodworking there's a hundred ways to do to do anything do the one that works for you to your point about skills you know i thought i thought it was something to to do for a couple of months and you know get to a point where i can do it reliably because i'm pretty sure that if you can cut close to the line with that then it makes it easier it makes it better i mean i can certainly see the attraction if i'm chewing up the um baseline with a few chisel you know cuts that's certainly better than knocking it out and i thought i'd give it a go for a couple of months and just see where i end up on that and yeah learn from there yeah that's where i've been pushing mine on that is to try and get that as close to the line as possible because i did it before and you cut it a quarter inch up and well you might as well have just chopped it at that point brad um thank you very much for your time today you know i mean i think uh, uh for all the listeners i'm obviously going to publish the list so that we can you know we can put ray's list and brad list up and you know talk about that i think the context of it was just to try and share a little bit of you know what what we think is important because if you're going to go out and buy that thick chunky book of tools there's that i don't know perception maybe that you need all of those to get going with your work i like zach dillinger's you know title of his book you know with saw plane and chisel because i think if you've got a decent plane you've got a decent saw and you've got a couple of decent chisels it's really it's amazing what you can do but thank you for your time and for 
sharing everything and you know just giving a different perspective on that art that's been useful to to people who are listening well thank you for having me on ray i hope it has provided uh you know something to your listeners uh, you know even if it's you know just hearing a couple of sets of opinions on thing i really uh, you really appreciate it you know i'm no no master craftsman but hopefully i can give people some ideas fantastic so there you have it woodworms I hope you enjoyed the discussion of tools and it'll give you some guidance when you're looking through your toolbook purchase that you're going to add to your library. So go out and buy a great quality tool and keep reading. If you've got any comments or suggestions, you can find me on handtoolbookreview at gmail.com and if you'd like to support the show, I'm on Patreon.